Well, good morning and happy new year to you. Welcome to 2023. And I thought since we're going to be celebrating the new year together, it would be good to talk about some of the themes that tend to circle around it. When you think about a new year, you typically think about a fresh start. And with that, you think about change. That's why people make resolutions at New Year's, because they're hoping that a fresh start will spur change. The problem is, is that statistically speaking, we find out that before the end of the first month, about 80% of us have given up the resolution, which means that more than likely resolutions aren't really the answer when it comes to change. But change is important. So that's why we're going to be talking about it. Today, our sermon is titled, Newness, the Transforming Power of Christ. And what we're going to be examining is the ability that only Jesus, Jesus has to change us. Not necessarily to change our behavior, although he can do that, but Jesus always changes in a way that's different from how we change. We always try to change from the outside in. Like we, we try to quit smoking, we try to lose weight, we try to be better spouses, try to get our finances in order. We always try to change the outside things and then we wonder why it doesn't really last. Well, Jesus changes in a very different way and he teaches us very clearly that genuine change, lasting change can only come from the inside out. And today we're going to take a look at a person who seriously needed some change. Somebody whose life was, by most people's estimation, hopeless. You probably know somebody like the person we're going to be taking a look at today. Somebody who just seems to have made choices and the choices have made them, and that vicious circle has dragged them down into bondage and misery to a place where even the people who love them the most have just lost hope in the fact that they can never change. And we're going to see Jesus meet this individual and just radically transform him. The story begins, and I'll invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, in your Bibles. The story begins in an ancient city called Capernaum. Capernaum was a seaside area on a lake in a region of Galilee, thus it was called Lake Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee, they often refer to it as. And Jesus was there because that's where one of his primary disciples Peter and his brother Andrew, along with another pair of brothers, James and John, had a fishing operation, and Peter was living there, and it was a good-sized city and well-traveled, and so Jesus sort of used it as the base of his operations, and he did a lot of ministry there. He taught a lot there. He did a lot of miracles there. Many of the stories that we have in the New Testament gospel accounts take place in Capernaum because that's where Jesus did a lot of work. And one time he was there and he was teaching and healing and he was being crushed in by people who were coming to him looking for something and wanting to hear from him. 
He had become a spectacle. And one day, he was really tired. He'd been teaching right on the shore, and eventually he had had to move into a boat because the people were just pressing in on him. And as nightfall was coming, he was just wore out. So he told his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. We have to get away from these crowds or they're they're just going to consume us and I need some rest. So they get into the boats. They begin to move across the lake. And as they do, a squall comes up on the lake, which is common to this day. Jesus, by this point, is just passed out, just tired. He doesn't even notice that there's a storm. The disciples do, though. These were experienced fishermen, and they began to really get frightened because they knew that it wouldn't take much for this storm to begin to swamp the boat and drown them. So they begin to to cry out to Jesus and actually issue accusations saying, don't you care about us? We're going to drown. Wake up. Jesus wakes up, calms the storm, and says, don't you have any faith by now? Any faith in me? With the storm calm, they continue to cross and they get to the other side of the lake, which brings us to our passage. We're going to be taking a look today at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, that is, Lake Galilee, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, when it says that they went to the other side, Capernaum, if you take a look at Lake Galilee, it's sort of oval. At Capernaum was, I'll try to do it as you're facing me, it was on the northwest side of the lake. And they sailed to the other side of the lake, which would be the east side, but they also traveled the opposite direction all the way toward the southeast side. So they made a diagonal cut across the lake. And we're told that they came to an area known as the country of the Gerasenes or the region of the Gerasenes. Now, this story that I'm going to tell you today is in three of the four gospel accounts, which tells you it was real important. It made a real impression on the disciples, as it did the people of that day. And because it's in three of the gospel accounts, there are different bits of information in each one. Now, what you'll see is that Mark and Luke, their account is very close to one another. They're not exactly the same, but they're very close. But Matthew, who also tells the story, introduces quite a few details that aren't in Mark and Luke's account. And that happens throughout the gospel, uh, the gospel narratives, is that each person, each man telling his story is telling it from his own perspective. So it makes sense that there would be different details in each one. That shouldn't surprise us. What should surprise us is, is if all four accounts just spoke the same thing. Then you would suspect collusion. You would suspect they got together and synchronized their story so nobody would accuse them of manufacturing things. But instead, each of the gospel writers tells the story from their own perspective and therefore introduces details that aren't in the others. But that sometimes can, when you're reading these accounts, cause you to get confused. And we don't want any confusion, so we're going to try to square that away. First of all, we see that Mark and Luke focus on one character that Jesus speaks to, one man, whereas Matthew tells us that there were actually two men. 
But even Matthew focuses on the dialogue of the primary character, the man who's speaking with Jesus. It's not a conflict, it's just that Matthew's introducing an extra detail. There were actually two guys, but there was one guy that Jesus was really speaking to. We also see that the name of the place differs between the different accounts. Matthew says that where they were when they got to meet this man was a place called Gadara, a region of Gadara. Mark and Luke say it was an area called Gerasa. And what further complicates it is that in some of the manuscripts that were written off of the originals later on, the word is actually Gergesa. So you got three places that are mentioned here as being where this event took place. Does that mean that it's in conflict with itself? That the writers didn't know what they were talking about? That it's a lie? No, of course not. First of all, we're told that these were, it was near these areas. And what we know from history is that Gadara, Garasa, and Gergesa were actually three areas that were within a specific region known as the Decapolis. It was a 10-city metropolis on the east side of Lake Galilee, on the east of the Jordan River. Today, it would be modern Jordan. And some of these areas, matter of fact, all three, had overlapping boundaries with one another. And it makes perfect sense when you take a look at the fact that it is a story that's being told. For example, let me let me help you here, and we're going we're gonna to use our good friend Tyler in this, okay? Suppose there was a farmer somewhere out on the outskirts of Abilene here, right? And suppose there was a farmer plowing his field, and all of a sudden, he hit something heavy. So he stops, and he looks, and it actually was so heavy, so dense, so big, that it bent one of the tongs on his plow. And he got out and he looked at it and he's digging it out. And all of a sudden he realizes that he's actually hit a boulder made out of gold. And it's huge. And what went from being a pain in the neck and an expensive repair all of a sudden went to joy. His neighbors heard about it. His family heard about it. Everybody heard about it. This farmer found a boulder made out of gold. I imagine that might make the news. And if it happened on a weekend, our good friend Tyler would go on the news and he would report that a man in Abilene unearthed a gold boulder. Now maybe our other good friend Annabelle would go on her newscast and she would report that the man found that boulder in Taylor County. And maybe the news would go national, because that's a pretty big story. And maybe somebody on the national news would report that a man in West Central Texas discovered a gold boulder. Now, would any of those three accounts conflict with one another? Nope. They'd all three be true. Same thing here. Now, where was it specifically? We don't know exactly where this man was, but we suspect from the geography of the area that it was probably a place known as, today it's called Kursi. It's located within the Israeli-controlled section of the Golan Heights. Uh, if you know anything about Israeli 
geopolitical issues today. You know that the Golan Heights are at the northern part of Israel. It's a mountainous region, and it's under great dispute. The Jordanians think that it's theirs. The Syrians definitely think that it's theirs, and the Israelis have control of it. And in this area, it's a mountainous area, and, and, and there are certain regions that have a lot of caves, a lot of cliffs, and a lot of spooky ancient tombs. They are in existence to this day. And Kersey is an area that has all three, including a steep slope that runs right down to Lake Galilee. So that's where most theologians think that this occurred. Verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. The whole concept of unclean was a Jewish concept. It came from the law of Moses. The Jews were told that if someone has a skin disease, they become unclean. If someone has anything to do with death, they become unclean. There were a lot of things that could make a person ceremonially unclean and therefore in need of ritualistic purification. And I think God was using that as a means of symbolically teaching the people that there's a difference between being clean before God and being unclean, acceptable and unacceptable. And the fact that this man is referred to having an unclean spirit, I think is an indication that he was probably Jewish. A Gentile wouldn't think in terms of an unclean spirit but a Jew would. Moreover, we're told that Jesus' primary ministry when he was here was to the Jews. Now, he did interact with Gentiles from time to time, but most of the time, even he said that he had came, come for the lost sheep of Israel, Matthew 15, 24. And certainly, any man who spent all of his time hanging around where corpses were, graveyards were, would have been considered unclean. Moreover, we're told in Luke 8 that because this man was under the control of a demonic spirit, that he stripped down naked and ran, away, ran around that way all the time. That too would have rendered him unclean. Verse 3, he lived among the tombs. I mean, that alone is just disturbing. He lived in a graveyard. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. What a miserable existence, and what a frightening character. There was a man, actually, there were two men, but one in specific that Jesus will interact with, that when they get to the shore on the other side of the lake, they encounter, and he is terrifying. First of all, by all accounts from the passage, he's naked. That alone is troubling. He lives in a graveyard, and apparently he has superhuman strength. When this unclean spirit that was controlling him would be active, he was, for all intents and purposes, invincible. They had chained him up, and he would snap them like Superman. Why was he chained? I thought about that. Who chained him, and why was he chained? I would say that 
the people who chained him were the people who lived around him, perhaps friends, family, or just the villagers that live around. We find out later on that there were definitely people around there. Why would they chain him? Two reasons, and probably both were in play. One, for their own protection. If you had a crazy naked guy living in the graveyard near you, might you be inclined to want to make sure that he's chained down to not come visit you every night? I would. That's why we build jails. But I don't think that's the only reason he was chained. I'll be honest with you. I think him being chained was also an act of compassion. I think I would bet that friends, family, people who cared about him chained him down to keep him from hurting himself, not just them. We're told that he would, in these mountains at night, he would howl like a coyote, that he would self-mutilate, cut himself. One of the things that we learn is that whenever the devil gets involved in someone's life, that the effect of it is always self-destructive. It boggles my mind why anybody would want anything to do with witchcraft or the occult or the devil if they knew what they were toying with. And yet I've seen people do it. Here is this man. He's literally trying to destroy himself. And there is nothing or no one who can subdue him when he's under the active control of this demon or demons there's no one that can stop him. There's no one that can save him. He can snap chains like they're made out of butter. He can crush the shackles on his wrists and on his feet that are designed to protect others and himself. This is one scary, dangerous man. You may know some guys like this. Scary, dangerous men. I remember when I was back in California... I had a friend, and he worked for um, the Corrections Department of California. And he talked about some of the places that he had been over the past, some spooky places, places like Corcoran that you've never heard of but was close to where I lived, where they kept Manson and other really scary guys. The modern place today is Pelican Bay, where they keep the worst of the worst. That's who this guy was. Imagine why the people around him maybe started to think, all he is is dangerous. All he is is scary. But there's no hope for him. The crying out, we don't know specifically what it was, but it likely involves some kind of a haunting, unearthly, guttural scream of intense emotional and physical anguish. It would have been disturbing. It would have been horrifying. In Luke 9, there's a story told about a child that was demon-possessed who used to do the same thing. Boy, is, is the enemy ruthless that he would do this to a child too? Verse 6, and when he, the man, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Okay. You've probably already got a visual image of what kind of a terrifying guy this man was. And you would think if he encounters Jesus, who he would clearly under the influence of a demon see as an enemy, as a threat, 
you would think that somebody that can snap chains and break shackles and who cuts himself and howls at the moon at night and who everybody is terrified by, you would think such a man, when he sees Jesus, would immediately go and begin to confront him, perhaps violently. Isn't it amazing, the response of this dangerous, scary man? He sees Jesus. First of all, Jesus is unafraid. He sees the man, from all we can tell from the text, he makes a beeline for him. He stands in front of him, and what he says is, come out, you filthy spirit. Come out of this man. And unlike the movie The Exorcist, where the demon is defiant, I hope you have never seen that movie. I hope you have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) This demon doesn't stand up and spin his head and spew junk and start breathing threats and getting violent. This demon becomes like a little six-year-old when he's about to be taken out to the woodshed. Does anybody still have a woodshed? Some of you probably do. It gets cold around here. When he's about to be disciplined, this demon gets down, we're told, on his knees and starts begging Jesus. Why? Why would a being that could do that, some spirit that could empower a human to do these kinds of things, why would it cower? Because you and I underestimate Jesus big time, but he didn't. He knew exactly who he was dealing with, and he was terrified. You know, we underestimate Jesus so much. We're ashamed to talk about him with people that we know. We don't believe that he still has any power or that he can do anything. Churches that are empty because they no longer respect or fear God. But the harsh reality is is that God's enemy knows better than anyone who he's dealing with and what he's capable of. And he says, don't torment me. Don't torment me. You know, Jesus told a really interesting story in a previous chapter, Mark chapter 3. Jesus had been casting out demons all over the place, something that others could not do. There were others trying, even the Jewish religious leaders tried to do exorcisms. It was common practice, but with real varying results most of the time, not much at all. Jesus was casting out the demons nobody else could cast out, even his own disciples. And because of it, and because the Pharisees couldn't explain it, and because it was something they themselves couldn't do, they got jealous. And they were being called to account by their own people who were saying, well, why can he cast out the demon and you guys can't? And you're supposed to be the religious leaders. Why are we giving you all this homage and all of our money and all of our allegiance and loyalty and why are we listening to you and letting you teach us and here comes this man and he can do things you can't do and the religious leaders got mad and they said well well we'll tell you why because the way that he's casting out demons is by the power of the devil and jesus when he hears that looks at him and, and with i'm sure incredulity says are you insane Let's just use logic here. Why would the devil want to cast out a demon? If he's fighting with himself like that, then his house is divided and it cannot stand. But then he makes the most intriguing comment of all. He says, 
No. You can't go in and take what a strong man has unless you can bind him first. Otherwise, he'll throw you out of there. He may even kill you for trying to take what he's got. And Jesus is explaining the way I'm casting out demons is by binding the strong man. The strong man is the devil. I'm not in league with him. I'm at war with him, and I am crushing him. And that's how I'm setting people free. I am going in, I am chaining him, and then setting the people that he has held captive free. And beloved, that is how transformation works. Don't forget that. Verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. In Greek, the word legion is legeon. The Romans used it to refer to a force, a military force, of somewhere between five and 6,000 soldiers. And when this conglomeration of spiritual beings, this, this gathering of evil that's housed within this one man, addresses Jesus and identifies himself he says, I'm just known as Legion. This man may have had as many as five to 6,000 demons in him. No wonder he had the power to do extraordinary things. Now, we don't know for certain that there were five to 6,000. We do know that there were at least 2,000. Because later on, there's a huge herd of pigs that number 2,000. And they're all going to be filled with demons. But I suspect that it was probably five to 6,000, verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. In Greek, the word country is kora. It means the region or the countryside. Now, we do know in specific that in Luke 8, what the demon legion was really afraid of was that Jesus was going to cast him into a place known as the abyss. Now, we're told in 2 Peter 2, 4, and in Jude 1, 6, that the abyss was a very specific place. It was a place created by God in order to confine particularly wicked and dangerous and powerful spiritual beings who were trying to move beyond the providential allowance of God for their conduct. Listen, God has allowed the devil and the demons to do certain things, but always within the parameters of his providential control. But there were some demons, we're told, who were so wicked and so evil that they thought that they could challenge those boundaries. And when they did, we're told that God took them and taught them a lesson by throwing them into an abyss, a spiritual prison, where they would be held in darkness and in chains that they cannot break, and they will be held there until Judgment Day. It is a fascinating topic that you can read about uh, in Revelation, when it talks about during the end times as a part of God's judgment on the earth, he's going to let open the abyss and let the horrifying, indescribable things that are housed within it loose. It would be like if we were to open up the doors at Corcoran or Pelican Bay or pick your most scary prison around here in Texas. Verse 10. Or, excuse me, um, but... One of the things that I find interesting here in verse 10 is that they also beg him 
to stay in the region. They're not just worried about being sent to the abyss, but what they're really asking Jesus for is, don't send us out of the area. Let us stay in this area here. We'll leave this man, these men, but don't force us to leave the area. I find that fascinating. Why would they want to stay in this area? You want even more fascination? Jesus lets them. Why? I'll answer that in a minute. Verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The fact that there was this large of a herd of pigs and the fact that Jews hated pigs, have nothing to do with pigs, to this day they're considered an unclean animal, demonstrate that this herd was not under Jewish control. It was under Gentile control, which makes sense because the Decapolis was a Gentile settlement. So you got these at least two Jewish men who are being housed or housing themselves near this remote graveyard where they're doing crazy things. And then the settlements around there were Gentile. And part of it had to do with a huge herd of pigs. And so Jesus gives them permission to go out of the man and to go into the pigs. And as soon as they do, we're told that these demons cause these pigs to run down a steep cliff and to drown themselves so that all 2,000 pigs are immediately killed. Why do the demons force the pigs down to drown them? I believe, we're not told in the passage, but I believe in order to be set free. This was a transitional move. They went into the demons, or to the pigs. The demons uh, drowned the pigs, which I believe set them free in order, what was their goal? To stay in the area. There's a very interesting story in Luke eleven twenty four. Jesus talks about demon possession. And he says that when a person is relieved of demon possession, when the demon is cast out of a person, we're told that the demons are forced into areas that are referred to in the Scripture as arid, waterless places, desert, spiritual deserts. And it says they roam around until finally they come up with the idea of, let's go back and see how things are where we left. And Jesus says that if they come back, oftentimes they find a place that's been swept clean and empty. In other words, no more demons there, but hasn't been filled with anything else. And therefore, they come back, and the second situation is worse than the first. It's Jesus' way of saying, listen, just having a demon cast out of you won't really help you. What you need is God's Spirit to take the place that was filled with evil. Again, transformation inside out. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. The people came to see what was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Okay, why did the demons want to stay here? And why did Jesus let them? Because of the people who were there. The people who were there. Listen, Jesus comes. 
They've got these two guys that are up in the hills that are scary and dangerous. They can't control them. Jesus comes and sets them free, changes them so that when they come back, they find these two guys sitting there. First of all, they're wearing clothing. That's a nice change of pace. Second of all, they're in their right mind. They just seem like average guys. They've gone from being the kinds of spooky things that live on death row to being model citizens. And how do the people react? Praise God. This is a miracle. Who are you? Tell us more about yourself. How did you do that? Is that what they do? No. They say to Jesus, you got to get out of here. You got to get up out of here. Why? One, because he had cost them financially. Two, because they did not understand what he did. Three, we're told they were afraid of it and didn't like it. They preferred these two guys in their previous condition than Jesus coming to set them free, which tells you something about their character. They wanted nothing to do with the kingdom of God. These were godless, materialistic people. They had no room in their hearts for Jesus. And so, Jesus judged them. Ever read Romans chapter 1 about how God goes about dealing with people who don't want anything to do with them? There's a phrase that continues on. I'd encourage you to read it later on. It says that God gives them over. He gives them over. In other words, he gives them what they want. Ultimately, that's what hell is. Hell is God giving people what they want. You want nothing to do with me? All right, I'll send you to a place where you will never have to worry about that again. You will receive the due penalty for your wickedness, and you will never have to worry about me intervening again. I think that's why these demons wanted to stay there, because it was friendly territory. And beloved, there are places that are friendly toward evil, encourage evil. I know, I've been there. There's other places that aren't as friendly. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. It's interesting that when God really does something transforming in our lives, our natural tendency is to just want to get away from everything we've been a part of before and just hang out with Jesus. We want to go to a monastery. We don't want to deal with the outside world anymore. We want to just shut down and be where Jesus is. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be where Jesus is. But Jesus tells this man, no, listen, you're not the only person out there who needs hope like what I've given you. So I want you to do is go out and start telling people. You'll be with me soon enough. But for now, go out and start telling. Remember we talked about this with Anna last week? When you know something's true, when you know it's important, when you know outsiders need it, you cannot help but share it. And if you don't, it says something about you. Well, this guy was sent by Jesus back to go share his story. All right, let's take a look in the, in the time we have left as to how transformation works. How does it work? The first thing, the first aspect of when Jesus transforms a life is that they are set free from darkness. That's another way of saying they're set free from the control of evil. This guy was under the direct control of evil. There are a lot of people out there in your world who are under the direct control of evil. And if you love them, that should break your heart. You may or may not believe it's possible for them to change, but it should break your heart. 
They need transformation. Colossians 1.13 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. This man was inhabited by a legion of wicked, evil, filthy spirits. And Jesus dispatched them like that. Beloved, he can do that in your life. He has done that in my life, and he can still do it today, even if we doubt it. So the first thing he does is sets us free from the control of evil, from darkness. The second thing he sets us free from is death, which is the consequence of evil. I'm so thankful for that. Jesus doesn't just set us free from the penalty of sin, but when he begins to work in our life, he also begins to set us free from the presence of it. He begins to sanctify us, is the theological word. Begin to change us into what we can be. We're told in 2 Corinthians that we become a new creation. How did that affect this guy? Verse 15, when the outsiders, the people that lived around the area, came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, verse 15, sitting there, he was clothed and in his right mind. What an example of change. You want radical change? That's radical. Romans 6.13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. He sets us free from darkness, okay, from the control of evil. He sets us free from death, from the consequence of evil, both eternally and in real time. And then lastly, he sets us free to disciple. In other words, we're set free to begin to convey the message of hope to other people, which is how the loop comes around. We go and share with other people, and if God wills, those people's lives are changed too, and the church grows. It happened a lot in the New Testament. In Acts, we're told one day Peter preaches one message and 3,000 people get saved. 3,000 lives get transformed. And beloved, I believe God wants to transform lives right here, right now. The people that you know, the people that you have maybe written off and think are hopeless and helpless because they're howling at the moon and mutilating themselves and under the control of evil that is strong and daunting, He wants to set those people free. And He can and will through anybody who's just crazy enough to believe Him. Verse 20 says that he went away to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. That's conveying the message. That's discipleship. He's making more disciples. Mark 2, verses 14 and 15 tells a story about Levi, a tax collector who everybody had written off. I would imagine the other disciples, when they saw Jesus go to the, to the tax collector's booth that Matthew was sitting in, were just probably trying to wave him off. No, 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 wrong guy, wrong guy, wrong guy. Jesus went anyway, and Matthew was saved. Verse, Mark 2, verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Jesus goes. He shares with Matthew. Matthew believes and is changed. And what's the first response? He goes and tells all of his rotten tax-collecting friends, hey, come to my house for dinner tonight. I got somebody you need to meet. 
and more people's lives are changed. Ah, beloved, that God would give us a bolder spirit these days to believe that he's still in the business of transformation, no matter who the person is. We sometimes don't think it's possible because we look at the world that we live in and how it's getting darker and darker, and we look at the church and it seems to be getting more and more feeble, more and more compromised, more far away and distant from the heart of God. And we just tend to think, ah, all that's left to do is hunker down and wait for Jesus to come back, but there isn't much that can be done. Wrong. Wrong. We should be taking this message out there because it is the only hope for this dark and dying world. 2 Corinthians 10 4 says that the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. I don't think we realize just what we've got in the gun closet sometimes. And I'm not talking about literal guns. I know this is Texas. I'm talking about spiritual weapons, okay? Spiritual weapons that can demolish strongholds. You know a lot of people that are being held in a stronghold. And they need to be set free. On June the 9th, back in 2005, there was a 12-year-old girl from just outside a city, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. I don't know if you know your geography, but that's the capital of Ethiopia. There's a 12-year-old girl minding her own business, and one day she was abducted. She was later reported missing by her parents. An investigation determined that she'd been abducted by a party of seven men who were seeking to violently force her into an arranged marriage with one of them. This is a barbaric practice that continues to this day in Ethiopia. It involves taking young girls, isolating them, beating them, and gang-raping them until they capitulate to be married. Such rituals account for nearly 70% of marital unions in rural Ethiopia, according to the United Nations. Well, unsurprisingly, due to the remote location where she'd been taken, a place called Bitagane, which is a secluded and heavily forested region about 350 miles southwest of her home, uh, there wasn't a person within earshot of her plaintive cries for help. Imagine, a little 12-year-old girl. But that doesn't mean that her cries weren't heard. In fact, not just one, but three heroes arrived to rescue her. And what's really ironic is that they were not human. They were what the natives refer to as Kepi Anibesa. Kepi Anibesa is a term in Amharic. That's the regional dialect of this area of Ethiopia. You know what it means in English? Cape lion. This girl was crying out in this remote area, no people around, and as she cries out, three Cape lions show up. According to eyewitnesses, four, uh, including four of the seven perpetrators who were later apprehended, within minutes of the little girl starting to cry, a trio of lions leapt from the brush and angrily chased off attackers before returning to encircle and form a protective perimeter around the girl. Moreover, at no point did they threaten her in any way. They simply stood guard until rescuers arrived the next morning and then calmly walked back into the jungle. Get the picture. Seven grown men abusing this 12-year-old girl. She does what any 12-year-old girl does in that situation. Starts crying out, probably for her mommy and her daddy. 
crying out for anybody to save her. These men are ruthless. They do not care. But all of a sudden, out of the jungle springs three Cape lions. They're very distinctive looking. They have black manes, and they're very familiar to the people of Ethiopia. They're part of their national symbol. They are revered, and they are feared because these animals will tear you apart. And so when they come out of the bush, these seven guys booked it. They got out of there as fast as they could. And eventually, because her village had contacted authorities and authorities had gotten a lead, and they finally got to the area where they suspected they had taken her because it was a popular area for such things. When authorities showed up, here's this little girl still whimpering and crying, surrounded by three Cape lions. And they didn't know what they were going to do. They thought they were going to have to put the lions down. But what they found out was that when they got out of the vehicle, the Cape lions simply stood up and walked away. Why? There were a lot of explanations that were later offered for this unusual behavior. One expert suggested that the girl's whimpering may have sounded like a cub to the group and thus triggered an instinctive protective response. But the village that she comes from has a different perspective. You see, almost her entire village is made up of evangelical Christians. And as soon as they had heard that this little girl had been taken, they had gotten together and began to fast and pray for God to deliver her. And you will never convince them that this was anything less than a miracle. Well, that's how God does his thing. I hope you're impressed because I am. I hope your faith is built up because mine is. I hope you see this new year as an opportunity to start taking the good news out to people that need to hear it, whether they want to hear it, think they need to hear it, or whether you think that they'll respond in the right way or not. God can do some powerful things. Let's start believing Him for it. Father, thank You. Your Word is truth. And if we're going to be talking about change, Lord, we're talking about a whole lot more than just resolutions. We're talking about transformation. Lord, I pray today you would give us time to meditate on these things, to realize that it doesn't matter whether it's the first century or the 21st century, that there are people that are being consumed by evil and they need to be set free. And we have the only antidote. We have the only one who can cast out evil, set people free, and fill them with something good and new and powerful and transformative. And Father, give us boldness, we pray, to go and to share that story. In Jesus' name, amen.